morning once again. It is Monday, September 14th, and this is Community Pulse, your local report on the coronavirus pandemic in mid-Missouri. You can catch Community Pulse Mondays and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. on KOPN, and all episodes can be found online at KOPN.org and on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Today on Community Pulse, our host, Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, is joined by City Columbia City Council member Ian Thomas. They'll dive into the state of the pandemic in mid-Missouri and explore possible responses on the part of city council as well as challenges ahead. Good morning, Dr. Alleman. How are you doing today? Oh, good morning, Mallory. It is a beautiful day to support KOPN, and I can't tell you how grateful I am to the entire community for supporting KOPN, so I can, you you know, be a part of helping to support the community. Um, and welcome to Ian Thomas. Thank you so much, Ian, for being willing to join us this morning. Well, very much my pleasure, Elizabeth. Uh, thanks for having me on, and thanks for doing this program all this time. Um, yeah, so um, we usually start the show um, with a little bit of a review of the numbers, and I kind of want to take a little bit of a, um, of a bird's eye view. You know, we had a very, um, during the summer, our daily numbers grew between 20 and 50. When they got up close to 50, we really pushed the health department to, um, you know, in their ability to respond in a timely fashion for to notify people about their positive results and to begin to do contact tracing. And then, of course, as the students returned, the college and university students returned to Columbia in the beginning and middle of August, we saw uh, remarkable increases in numbers. Um, having a stunning increase last weekend, a little bit over a week ago, of you know over 200 cases in a day. And the health department, despite having increased their um, their em- employees who could do uh, contact tracing, you know, admitted and that the university had also started um, having their own contact tracers. So we had, you know, significantly increased our workforce. Uh, they um, have admitted to us that they're a week behind in being able to contact uh, people who have uh, tested positive and help people contact their contacts and um, help people quarantine. Um, in the, we were really, I was really worried about what uh, uh, Labor Day weekend was going to do because the Memorial Day weekend and the Fourth of July weekend tended to markedly increase uh, cases during the state. And for Boone County, what we've seen is a decline in our numbers, probably because it's been right at, uh, I think it's been two weeks since we uh, asked the bars to close at 10 o'clock. Um, so the numbers, though, are still way too high for the Columbia Public Schools to feel like it is safe for them to reopen school. So um, all of our primary and secondary students are learning virtually now, unless they are in a private school or some other or a home school. Um, and that is a stress on the students, on the school system, and on, um, the, uh, on parents, of course, and families. So we still have bars and restaurants open to indoor dining and drinking, um, despite the fact that the White, Horse, White House Task Force has recommended that we close bars and uh, uh, restaurant dining outside. Um, and, the, and we now have data that shows that half of all people who are tested positive uh, dined in a restaurant in the week before they, uh, they were positive. So... Um, 
it is clear to me that policy changes this pandemic. And I'm really glad that uh, you, uh, Ian Thomas, were willing to come be here. And I'm wondering what 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 your perspectives are. Are there different numbers than the ones I'm looking at that you're noticing? How are you paying attention to this uh, pandemic? (laughs) No, I think I'm looking at the same numbers as you, Elizabeth. Um, And um, I guess I'd like to just start by by, um, describing, you know, my proposal for how um, I would have liked to respond to this right from the start. First of all, I would have uh, enacted, you know, a rapid emergency shutdown um, with non-essential businesses closed, non-essential travel prohibited, um, all gatherings canceled, you know, for, you know, four to six weeks to really get on top of the uh, spread of the virus. And we did that. And that was an excellent move very early and really stemmed the spread early and gave ourselves a great advantage. And then during that period of, of controlled spread, really no spread, um, three things I feel that, that, that would have been very helpful. First of all, um, I would have appointed a community-wide advisory task force um, of decision makers and subject matter experts from our sort of key stakeholders, obviously the city of Columbia and the county of Boone, um, the public school system, the University of Missouri, the other colleges, the healthcare organizations and providers, the Chamber of Commerce, um, the social services sector, all of those key institutions that have so much at stake in a situation like this, and, and set up a, a process of, of uh, publicly uh, open uh, uh, reviews and discussions, transparent Uh, debate around proposed public health orders and strategies to combat the virus. I think that would have really brought our community together. Um, And even though not everybody would have liked every decision, I think it would have been seen as a fair and transparent process, data-driven. Secondly, during the shutdown, I would have... Hey, can I interrupt you, Ian? Go ahead. Because I'm wondering, is it too late to do that? Not necessarily, not necessarily, what? but I have advocated it several times and um, not uh, been, uh, that there's really not been any interest. All right. Okay. So, so second thing I would have done, yeah. uh, and I don't know if it's worth doing that at this point, but in those early weeks, there was plenty of really great national <laughs> research going on. And I feel we should have applied that research to our own community and identified the necessary testing, contact tracing, and quarantining capacity we were going to need in this community as we opened up and really focused, built a a strong plan with a lot of political will to build up um, those necessary capacities. And those numbers in terms of tests per day, contact tracing capacity per day, uh, quarantining beds, isolation beds, you know, should have been, you know, part of a public discussion. And these are our goals. We want to get to these because our analysis suggests that if we can do this, we can then open up the economy, open up all our institutions at some level and have the capacity to deal with the spread as it happened. And, and uh, Andy Slavitt and Scott Gottlieb wrote an excellent uh, um 
analysis of that uh, process, and, and we could have easily taken that and adapted it and implemented it. And then I would have developed the, um, um, and really these three things could happen in parallel during the shutdown, and this one did, the creation of a phased reopening plan. Um, but the thing that was missing from the phased reopening plan that we had was um, sufficient pauses between each stage in the reopening to really allow the data to evolve and to analyze it and benchmarks for the um, you know numbers of new cases, the uh, hospital capacity, the positivity rates we were getting that would allow us to move to the next stage. Um, and I really feel if we had done that, uh, and we could have also, you know, built in specific benchmarks at specific time points for where the decision would be made, whether it was feasible to open the public schools, whether it was feasible to open the university, or even to have students back in Columbia, and, make, you know, had a strategy to hit those benchmarks so we could do those things. Um, Instead of which, it seems that there has been a, you know, a lack of coordination. Um, each organization has kind of, uh, you know, developed its own plan. Um, there's a sense, uh, I mean, I was pleased that the Columbia Public Schools developed very specific benchmarks for the 14-day average uh, increase in new cases to guide that. And, and that's transparent and it's honest. It may not be perfect. But I think it's going to have a lot more public support than the appearance that somebody's making a decision as a knee-jerk reaction to something and, um, a, you know, a lack of trust there. So um, we're, we're, you know, just sort of reacting instead of being proactive, and, and, and I feel we missed that opportunity. Yeah, I I think we we did, and I think part of it is that we were we've all been a little stunned and weren't sure exactly what was the right next thing to do. But I think that um, having um, more of the decision makers and policymakers in the room together, talking about it and working together, would be a great idea. Um, so I'm wondering, like, where, where what is the level of communication between the city council, the county commissioners? Uh, MU administration, the, the hospitals in town, what kind of communication is, is happening? Well, as a member of the city council, I haven't been involved in any uh, meetings or discussions other than public city council meetings at which the agenda is very, you know, uh, sort of predicated and um, these making these kind of decisions has not been part of it. We did at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, and I was very supportive of this, we passed an emergency resolution giving the public health director for the city and county um, a lot of authority that uh, she doesn't normally have because we're in an emergency situation. And I think that was, that was a, good, a good move. Uh, the city council are essentially volunteers, including the mayor. Um, uh, we are not professionals in this field, and in an emergency situation, I think it makes sense to give additional authority to make laws uh, and set policy, which normally is the domain of the city council, to the health director. But as I mentioned, I just wish we had established this community-wide advisory task force and a transparent process. The health director could still have the ultimate say, but there could be public you know, discussion and debates about different options moving forward. 
Um, yeah, I'm I really think that concerned. The mayor, uh, to just answer your question, Elizabeth, a little more specifically, I believe the mayor has been involved in a tremendous number of, of you know, discussions with the different institutions, the university, the, the county, uh, at the state level, the governor. I know he mentioned at the last council meeting that he met uh, with Deborah Burks from the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Um, but I haven't had the opportunity, and I don't think other members of the council have, to participate in that. So um, all I can glean is what I see from the outside, which is the same as you. Yeah. So um, I wonder about the impact of asking the director of the Department of Health to, to have all of that authority, which I can understand why it would be done, but it then begins to look like um, – it it puts her um, in an isolated position. You're right. And I I think it puts her very vulnerable to being pressured yep. by people who don't agree with the decision she's made. And I'm wondering how it is that city council and other people could could provide more support, which might allow her to have more um, ability to act. Yeah, well, I, I agree with you 100%. She's in a very vulnerable position. Um, she's not a politician. And yet she is being, um, you know, uh, uh, hammered with political attacks. Um, and um, I believe the city council should step up and provide more protection. And I have suggested that to the health director, to the rest of the council, both in public and in private emails. And again, there's been no interest on um the council's part, or did I detect on the health director's part to do that? Um, I do think. So, that, and what, is, yeah, go ahead. what about the board of health? What is the role of the board of health in a in a situation like this? Well, again, the board of health—it's part of you know normal government, like the city council, and normal government is not very well designed for reacting quickly to rapidly changing situations and emergencies. So, um, I think the board of health absolutely could have a major role. Um, I think actually, in uh, my my sort of suggestion around the advisory board. Uh, the community-wide advisory board, the Board of Health would have convened that advisory, you know, task force to review the the decisions, and they could have met online to protect everybody's safety. As far as I'm aware, the Board of Health has not really been invited to have a large role. I don't know that for sure, but I, uh, I'm pretty sure that all the board and commissions stopped meeting uh, during the shutdown because it was felt that it was um, it was a it's a big burden on the city staff to run the technology to facilitate those online meetings and also to abide by uh, state and federal you know public information laws. We we can't just be discussing policy and making policy without full you know public access to those decisions, and that creates difficulties. We did have council meetings on Zoom for a couple of months, as well as uh, the Planning and Zoning Commission and Board of Adjustment, which are um, kind of mandated legislative as well as advisory bodies. But everything else shut down. So I, I haven't heard much from the, um, the Board of Health. I believe Linnell Phillips is a member of the Board of Health, and I know she's been 
you know, really working hard both, um, as a volunteer with the county, um, city county health department and as a spokesperson for, you know, a data-driven public health response in the community. Um, but I'm not sure that the Board of Health as an entity has had the opportunity to really give any advice. So, um, and what, what is the role of elected officials, including the city council, in um, in moving to, to have further restrictions if they're needed, in deciding if they are needed, and um, and and uh, is there interest in, in people doing more? Well, there really isn't, Elizabeth. I proposed at the last council meeting last Tuesday um, that we at least follow the guidance of the White House Coronavirus Task Force for our county. Um, and I pointed out that this is not a White House that is well-known for over-exaggerating the uh, extent of this pandemic or for pushing for, you know, extreme restrictions. So whatever comes out mm-hmm. of that body is going to be pretty modest, in my view. And sadly, right. we're not even reaching that low bar um, for our uh, rise in numbers of, uh, of new cases over the previous two weeks. We're in the red zone as far as the White House Coronavirus Task Force is concerned, and we should shut all bars. Um, we should have outdoor dining. Uh, we should um, limit gatherings much more than we are doing. Um, and, and, and I suggested to uh, the health director, first of all, that we should be doing that. And her response was quite interesting. I, I, I think she said, I agree. She didn't say exactly I agree. <laughs> But what she actually said was, uh, if we're going to shut things down again, then it can't be left up to just me as the health director to make that decision. We have to have much more of a community conversation about it. And I said, I completely understand that, Stephanie. And I turned to the rest of the council and said, okay, let's have that conversation. Let's talk about whether we should at least meet the guidelines of the White House Coronavirus Task Force which is creating national recommendations, which is something that we have been lacking all this time, and nobody responded. So what, what are your biggest worries as we're moving into the winter? Well, my biggest worries are for Columbia and Boone County's most vulnerable residents, for people living on very low incomes, people who are doing essential worker jobs that exposes them to the virus, who don't have health insurance, who already have serious pre-existing conditions, making them increasingly vulnerable to this terrible disease, people, um, uh, homeless people, um, uh, who are not being protected by the decision makers. It doesn't really affect me personally or my family. I have a tremendous amount of privilege I am continuing to work, receive my paycheck, work from home. I hardly ever, you know, interact in public. Uh, City council meetings is about the only time I go inside a building other than my own home. Um, And and I'm just worried that our privileged set in this community is ignoring the needs of people who are so impacted by systemic uh, racial and economic injustices, uh, and I do hear from constituents in that group and the struggles they are having. 
um, with elderly relatives, um, with uh, trying to manage childcare and keep the job, uh, people just struggling now to even stay in their homes. Um, and and uh, I'm just terribly worried that unless we can really get on top of this viral spread, there's going to be a tremendous amount of hardship. Uh, Councilmember Thomas, what do you think that um, our listeners, our community members can do to help the City Council get clarity about what needs to happen next? Well, I'm always a fan of advocacy, and we've heard a lot of advocacy. Um, I want to congratulate you, Elizabeth, for your leadership in creating that petition and, and recruiting so many uh, experienced uh, healthcare professionals and professionals in other fields to sign on. Um, and I want to encourage those people who signed on to continue to advocate. I don't know another way to do this when there seems to be a, um, uh, a sort of a paralysis about making mm-hmm. any difficult decisions. Um, other than uh, build the pressure. If people believe this is what needs to happen, then, then we need to do it. Um, I think trying to articulate the fact that in resisting a robust response to the virus in the name of keeping the economy going, we've done immeasurable damage to the economy. And it's I been a very you. you know poorly thought through short-term strategy to try to keep things open, a lot of people like me are not engaging in the economy. We order delivery meals, but we're not going out to anything because we right. don't think it's safe and we have the privilege of being able to avoid doing that. So by, you know... Um, right, I'm I think you're struggling. right. And, and that brings me to a thing I wanted to ask you. We only have a minute or so left. But I think that a lot of people who are taking this virus very seriously would feel really uncomfortable going to a city council meeting. So I'm wondering how else can people get their voices heard uh, so that we, because I think the fact that they're happening in public, inside, in a room. But they are live streamed. They're live streamed on the city uh, internet and everybody can email us. And everybody's okay. uh, council members' email addresses are ward1 at como.gov, 23456, and mayor at como.gov. And uh, anybody who emails the city clerk, uh, which I think is city clerk at, e- at como.gov, uh, before 4 o'clock on the day of a meeting will have their public comments actually read during the meeting. And everybody okay. can watch along if you have an internet connection, because um, it, it is live streamed to hold people to account. And so, what you're saying is that when we contact uh, our council members by email, that is a, a that's an advocacy that has take, gets a little traction. Absolutely, yes, yes. Okay. I mean, it makes a huge impact on me what I hear from constituents, and I'm certain it does on, on other council members. Now, I'm not saying that, that everybody, every member is going to respond to everything they receive, but it is really valuable uh, for the voices to be heard by the council members. I do have tremendous respect for all my council colleagues. I believe they are making the decisions that they believe are, you know, in the best interest, guided by their own, you know, pre- uh, positions and what they're hearing from their constituents, but I would encourage constituents to uh, continue 
to advocate to those decision makers. Well, Ian Thomas, thank you so much for spending this half hour with us. I appreciate your service on the City Council. I appreciate you taking this time. Uh, and uh, we are, Mallory and I need to talk a little bit about how great KOPN is. So, okay, well, um, thank you very much for having me. I think KOPN is great as well. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Bye bye. All righty. Thanks, Dr. Alleman. That was a great conversation. Um, that I just, was so helpful. Yeah, it really, really was. Um, before we kind of dive in, I should have mentioned this at the top of the hour, but I didn't see the little paper right in front of me that I set down in the air room. I want to let our listeners know that for the next 40 people who donate $25 or more between now and noon, an additional $25 will be added to your donation by a generous donor. So that's if you if you call KOPN at 573-874-5676, or if you go online to KOPN.org and donate $25 or more, you will a, a generous donor will add $25 to that donation. Um, so that's between now and and noon. So, Dr. Alleman, ah, why is KOPN special to you? What? Oh what's, why goodness, is it important? Mary, I honestly don't know how I would have gotten through the last six months without KOPN. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in December, I heard news reports of what was going on with the coronavirus in Wuhan, and then I was watching it, wondering. I, I guess I have a little bit of a public health voyeurism. Um, I found myself doing a similar thing with the um, Ebola outbreaks in Africa a couple of years ago. That we, you know, we dodged that bullet. We did not get um, significant amounts of Ebola in the United States. And I wondered whether, you know, whether this would be the one that I'd heard about all the time I've been in training um, since, since medical school. Probably once a year, somebody mentions, well, now there was the influenza uh, pandemic in 1918 and 1919. And since it's happened once before, it could happen again, and we should all be ready. And, and then they would correlate that with whatever they were talking about. And so here, you know, it's like, hmm, I wonder if that's going to be it. And so when it started to happen in the United States, it was so frustrating to not have um, a, a voice. Mm-hmm. until we started the Community Pulse. And it has been an important outlet for me to um, feel heard by my community, to have an opportunity to serve my community. And with, I, I just don't think any other radio station besides KOPN would have been in a position to pivot so quickly and to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and earlier in this um, segment, you, you mentioned to Councilmember Thomas that it's really seeming like policy changes the pandemic. I mean, we, we know that now after so, so many months. Um, and right. we know that media coverage has an impact on the policies that are created. And here at KOPN, community interest is what drives the coverage that we provide on the radio. Absolutely. And so Community yeah. Pulse, you know, and all of our other local programs, even the national programs that we offer, um, really do impact, you know, our public safety, our public health, what's going on um, in the wider world in our everyday lives. And um, yeah, I wonder, you know, you have been so busy (laughs) during this time, (laughs) making testing accessible, distributing public health information. I mean, like you were just talking about, um, 
organizing healthcare and public health workers to sign the petition. So tell us a little bit about um, how that has been going for you and, and maybe even a little bit more specifically, you know, how your broadcast on Community Pulse fit into that wider mission. Yeah, so it really does feel like, I think often in a democracy, we um, advocate for something and we have no idea whether a thing we did had an impact on policy. Mm -hmm. Um, And often we can feel frustrated that we went to a lot of effort and we don't see that reflected in policy. But I will say that it appears that things that we, there seems to be a correlation. It is not a causation that when a guest or uh, one of the hosts or one of the board operators brings up a problem, that we often are getting a response from the com- from the, our leaders in the community. And I hope that we're being helpful to them and not just undermining. So, for example, both uh, Jenny Chadwick and I have been very concerned that we um, – that the numbers of contacts, the number of people in quarantine compared to the number of cases we have is very low. So anybody who has been more than 15 minutes, less than six feet away from someone would be qualified as a contact. So of course, anybody who lives in the household would be. And we have, we're running between two and three contacts in quarantine per case identified. And of course, that number is going to decrease as our public health them is overwhelmed, which they are, and unable to respond in less than a week. So, um, and what we noticed when we started asking that is that the dashboard that the uh, public health department was was presenting changed a little bit. Um, and they were reporting more clearly how many contacts were in quarantine. Hmm. It's also been, it seems that um, when I have complained about the fact that we have not had the University of Missouri has isolation rooms, but not quarantine rooms. I'm just going to say that again. They have they have isolation rooms. They have rooms for people who are sick and identified as a case. But they do not have any uh, availability that I have been able to identify of a room that a person can go to when they are identified as a contact of a case. So they've been exposed. They are not infected. We do not want them in the same place as the people who are infected. Once you're infected, we can kind of lump those people together. We don't want to increase exposure, but we can lump those together. We, if you, you do not want the people who've been exposed and have a fairly low chance, but not zero chance of turning positive, we don't want them re-exposed in an isolation room. We need a quarantine space. And what we're telling people when you're quarantining is that you stay, stay away from everybody. Well, what happens if you live in a dorm with a roommate? You can't stay away from your roommate in a dorm. Right. And the university has no allowance for that. And when I have responded by email to the emails that have gone out, what I've seen is that they modified their website, not in the way I would have wanted, but I'm seeing some responsiveness. So what they did was they just stopped speaking about it at all. Initially, they said that they should quarantine together. You cannot quarantine together. Not a thing. You're either quarantining or you're not quarantining. And so for the university to put their students in a spot, anyway, the point is that having, having KOPN means that our local officials need to be more responsive to us. So um, if you want me to say something, if you're a listener and you want me to say something to modify someone's behavior, send us an email, give us a call. 
make a donation. You don't have to make a donation. We'll still, we're going to we decide whether to put those things based on whether we think they're newsworthy and relevant. And then we will bring that up as a topic. So this is an opportunity. KOPN is this beautiful way where in an, in an environment where there is less and less local media, which means local officials don't need to be as responsive to their constituents, KOPN is filling this amazing, this really important role of giving our community members an opportunity to speak and to be heard. Mm -hmm. And there's not, I mean, here in Colombia, we have a pretty rich ecosystem of community, of local media, right? But we don't necessarily have independent community media, which means that we don't have financial ties to corporations or um, advertisers or um, even the university, right? Like we are able to talk about these issues freely independently and to really, you know, ideally like um, hold our leaders accountable in, in ways that are different from other types of, of media and journalism. Um, and so right. and we can have a city council person come on our show because I emailed him and he emailed me back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And exactly. I don't know. Like, I, I think that Councilman Thomas is being is trying to be very responsive. I think all the council people are trying to be responsive. But, um, you know, to be able to, to get a little bit of their time. And, and they can then, they know that they're talking to the local, their local constituents rather than feeling overwhelmed by national or state-based media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So today was, today's segment was a great example of what KOPN is, um, the conversations that happen here on 89.5 FM. And I just want to remind listeners, you know, if this is something that you really value, that you really think is something that should exist here in Columbia, in mid-Missouri, um, Give us a donation if you can of any, any amount. Really, your support means so much to us. We are listener supported. We're volunteer run. So um, your dollars make a direct impact on what we're able to do here. And you can donate by going to kopn.org or by calling 573 573- Eight seven four five six seven six, and for the next forty listeners who donate twenty five dollars or more between now and noon, an additional twenty five dollars will be added to your donation by a generous donor. So get those donations in between now and noon, and an additional twenty five dollars will be added onto whatever you contribute. Um, hey, can I throw something on top of that? Yes, please do. So if you mention community pulse, I'll add an extra ten. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Allman. Okay. You're welcome. Well, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Is there anything else you want to leave us with? No, tune in on Wednesday. Jenny Chadwick will be, uh, uh, I'm sure, having us a great show. And if I was more on top of details, I would probably know what she's going to be talking about. But we'll look forward to hearing what Jenny has to say. Yes, we will. All right. Thanks, Dr. Allman. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. You too. Bye. That's it for today's edition of Community Pulse. If you missed part of this program or want to share it with your friends, you can find it later today at KOPN.org and also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can catch us again live on Wednesday at 9 a.m. with Jenny Chadwick as the host. Thanks so much for tuning in to KOPN 89.5 FM. Between the Lines is up next. Stay tuned. 
Once again, you can make a donation at KOPN.org or call 573-874-5676. For the next 40 listeners who donate $25 or more between now and noon, you'll, your contribution will receive an additional $25 from a generous donor. So you donate $25 or more, a generous donor gives us $25 in addition to what you gave us. So it's a great, great incentive to get your donations in before noon. And if you mention Community Pulse when you call in or when you make that online donation, Dr. Alleman will add an extra $10. That's an extra $35 that could be added to your donation. So Please don't wait. Give us a call now, 573-874-5676, or go online to kopn.org to make a secure online donation. Thank you so much for listening to your community radio station here in mid-Missouri. Stay tuned for Between the Lines. Up next. Have a great day.